Many of us didn't grow up observing the church calendar, but since the fourth century, the church has ordered time according to the significant moments in the life of Jesus and the early church. This calendar begins with the celebration of Advent, a period of four weeks leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and we anticipate His second coming. In between these important Advents, we wait in the tension. We pray for deliverance. We cry out against injustice. We long for the culmination of redemption and the reign of King Jesus. The texts that are used for these weeks are not your typical Christmas passages. They are prophetic, apocalyptic, and filled with warning and hope. Each one leads us to consider Christmas for what it truly is. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Enjoy the episode. Okay, our text for this evening is from Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, we're gonna be reading a handful of verses here in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11, and then we'll set some context for us. I do think that this one might sting a bit this evening. Um, not just you, it has been stinging me all week. So this is Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse one. It says, a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances, nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth, and by the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and a lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord just as the water covers the sea. The word of God for the people of God. So of this passage, one scholar says, few texts in all of biblical literature are better known or loved than this one, and for good reason. Side note, when I first read this, I thought, really? I mean, just from a, a quick show of hands, you guys are, you're familiar with this passage, y yes? Okay, particularly probably the bit about the wolf and the lamb lying down together in this peacefulness, maybe the bit about the children playing over the dens of the, the serpents and that sort of stuff, but few texts in all of biblical literature are better known or more loved. This isn't a passage that you see on your grandmother's coffee mug or crocheted on a pillow over in the corner. This isn't a, a, a text that you usually see on, in the cards section as you're thinking about graduates and things. It just struck me as odd that this commentator would say that this passage is one of those. Now, do we know it? Yes. Does it have implications for us? Absolutely. But does it fit into this bracket? I'm not so sure. Let's hold off our judgments for a moment. He says, for all who read or hear uh, these verses aloud, these verses, they articulate the deep and persistent human hope for justice 
and peace. And actually, this might be why I could make a case that it's not that well known, because a lot of people don't like to talk about justice. A lot of people don't like to talk about the, the wrongs in the world and how they need to be righted. But again, let's leave that off to the side here. He says, and within the Christian church, this text expresses the promise of a Messiah who will establish peace on earth. And I wanna pause here for a second because if this text is known in communities like ours, it probably is known because of this last clause here. This text expresses the promise of a Messiah. And we quick jump right over the Old Testament context. But before we get all excited about how how Jesus has initiated this and how Jesus is the, the Lion of Judah, those sorts of images. Before we go there, we have to understand this passage in its ancient Near Eastern context. And even before we get there, we can just hang out with this first line of the first verse. A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. Any idea what's going on here? Tree. Say it again. Family tree. Family tree ancestry specifically of David. So when we're talking about the stump of Jesse, we're actually moving beyond Jesse to his kid David and the kingdom that David establishes. We can go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and how David was to be on the throne and his descendants were to be on the throne forever. But even at a more basic level, what I want us to see is a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, something has happened. The family tree, the ancestry, something has taken place, some judgment has happened, and now the prophecy is things will be better with the background of something has happened to initiate problems. There's this tension here between hope and disaster. The disaster has taken place. The tree has been cut down to the roots. And, and Isaiah begins to prophesy, and from this stump, from this lifeless tree, something new will begin to grow. It's actually a very powerful metaphor that might not land with us as we think about these sorts of things, but from this dead, lifeless tree that has been chopped down by God, in judgment, from that, a shoot will grow. From that, a branch will begin to bear fruit, it says in the next uh, half of that verse. Now, in order for us to understand this, we have to go back to some of our work from last week, namely with the three different sections of the book of Isaiah. Folks, we have in chapters 1 through 39, first Isaiah, and in chapters 40 through 55, we have... And in chapters 56 through 66, we have super controversial statements. <laughs> Not in critical scholarship, because most people will see very clear changes in context between chapters 39 and 40 and 45 and 56, a little bit less, but still it seems as though something different is happening. So if this is taking place in chapters 1 through 39 and our text is found here, what's behind this stump of the, the tree of, of Jesse is the Assyrian Empire that is invading and threatening and potentially destroying God's people. This is what's, what's, what's uh, leading us to see this image of the tree that has been chopped down. Now, I will give you a little bit of a spoiler. 
In chapters 1 through 39, when when Assyria is the main power, the main empire in the world, they actually don't complete the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. That doesn't happen until here in 586 when the Babylonians come and destroy Judah and Jerusalem. So here, it's all just this impending threat, and what the author is giving us are these pieces that at some point, it's gonna get all cut down. But don't lose hope in the midst of that punishment. God will still allow the promises to come to fruition. A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. And again, before we get all excited about this and we see like this this hopeful image of the tree stump and out of that something beginning to grow and God's promises beginning to come to fruition, we usually are very quick to place ourselves in the family that is growing up from that tree when it might be better for us to pause and to back up and to hear uh, some words from Walter Brueggemann who says readers in the United States might grasp the full weight of this text if we hear the text more poignantly in our role as part of the Assyrian superpower that we are rather than the little vexed remnant community. We are not the shoot growing up from the stump. We are the ax that has been used to level God's people. We are the superpower. A lot of times when we read these texts, whether it's in the New Testament, whether it's uh, we see Jesus like railing at the, the Pharisees, and then we say, good thing I'm in the boat with Jesus. Good thing I'm one of the disciples. Good thing I'm not the religious leader. We look back at these stories and we say, yeah, I'm part of this, this powerless migrant community, these, these, these people over here that are poor and oppressed. Maybe not. Are we God's people? Yes. But is the way that we live representative of Old Testament Israel and Judah and Jerusalem, this remnant? I'm not so sure. And I'd like us to just to, to sit there with that for a bit. We do have in this passage, a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. And as you guys have very... Uh, appropriately pointed out that this, really what's happening here is this is a prophecy that is going back to uh, show people that the, the line of David is not done yet. This passage, it's all about the ideal Davidic king. This is a huge theme in the Old Testament. And whenever any sort of judgment or uh, punishment takes place on God's people, this becomes the question, what about the promises? God, what about the promises to have a descendant of David on the throne forever? What do we do now in light of the fact that Assyria is looming and they might destroy us, or later that Babylon has destroyed us, or even later that we are now not even in the land anymore and our temple has been destroyed? What do we do in light of all this stuff? This passage is one of these intrusions in the text, these hopeful intrusions that are telling us that this is about the ideal Davidic king, and God is going to continue to do work through this person, and this passage is meant to give hope to God's people. Specifically, it gives us a vision in the first five verses what this ideal Davidic king will look like. Are you guys with me up to this point? 
You see what we've kind of laid out here. This prophecy is trying to give us an image of who this person is and why that is meant to inspire hope for God's people. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him. Don't immediately go into uh, the sort of understanding of the spirit that we have because in the Old Testament, that's not exactly what was happening. For Christians, we say that upon belief in Jesus, you are indwelled with the spirit of the most high God and the spirit never leaves you. It's nice, right? Boy, do we downplay that quite a bit when we're pining away over things. Like we forget that we have that spirit within us. But in the Old Testament, this is not something that would come and stick. This is a, this is a kingly sort of understanding and God's spirit who would come maybe temporarily upon these people to empower them says here that the spirit will rest upon this ideal Davidic king and this spirit will be a spirit of wisdom and understanding a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I don't necessarily want to unpack all of these terms here, but even our understanding or our, um, our awareness of, say, David's son Solomon and having the spirit of wisdom, he provides an image of what that wisdom would look like specifically in how he is ruling over God's people. The, the one who was in that position of kingship needed to be wise, to, uh, to enact justice amongst the people, to be able to arbitrate between two disgruntled parties, to be able to, to function as a judge would function. This individual needed to have wisdom and understanding, to be, to be one who was strong, to have knowledge, and also to fear the Lord. This, this king also won't judge by appearances, won't just see people on the outside, but will see what they, what they are on the inside. It won't just be, you look at the person with the nice clothes, stick with me because this might come back to play. You see the person with the nice clothes who's put together and immediately privilege them over the person that does not have those externals. This ideal ruler would be able to cut through all of that and see to the heart of things. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He won't be influenced by the stories that are being told. Instead, he will be able to have a true account of the people that are standing before him as he is ruling. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. Does this sound like a ruler? that we're familiar with. This isn't a Trump statement. <laughs> Do our presidents and government officials seem to be judging the needy with righteousness and deciding with equity for those who suffer in the land? I want to let that sit with you uh, for a moment. In the Old Testament context, we have lots of texts about the king, and this is their job. This is like their primary task is to be someone who is infused and passionate about justice, to not let the scales be perverted by any sort of bribery or things of that nature, but to rule with equity fairly amongst the people, not just to be looking out for their own self-interest and their own status and their own image and their own power but to use their status and image and power for the sake of the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. 
in Psalm 72, which actually, this is a prayer. It's, it's called, uh, this is a prayer of, of, or a psalm of Solomon. Nobody really thinks that Solomon wrote this, but this is a psalm that's about Solomon or the, a king-type figure, and it really cuts both ways. Imagine this prayer being prayed over the king. God, give your judgments, your mishpat, your, your justice, your equity, your rightness. Give that to our king, who may even be like, let's just imagine the king's in this, in this scenario, sitting right here as me, the prayer of the prayer, is praying. God, give this person your, judge, your rightness, your equity, your fairness. Give that to this person. Give your righteousness, your tzedek. This is a relational term. This is not just a holiness where we're saying, let this person not uh, look at these images on their smartphone or not let this person go and smoke these things out behind their house, but let this person's relationships be right. May they work to keep them close and fair. May your righteousness May you give it to this, to this king's son. Let him judge your people, again, with sedek, with righteousness, and your poor ones with justice. Can you feel the weight of this prayer coming on the king at this moment? Oh, dang. Like, this, this is not an easy position for me to be in, but the expectation is that they will give good judgments and that their righteousness will be uh, made available, that they will judge the people with fairness and equity and the poor with, with, with fairness. They will bring justice to these relationships that they have with people. Let the king bring justice to the people who are poor. Let him save the children of those who are needy, but let him crush oppressors. For the king to be here, this is like a, a, a two-edged sword because the weight that begins to lay on this person for this job is massive, but this is the expectation of the people that they will maybe, as Jesus would say, serve them, rule on behalf of them, for the benefit of them, not for the benefit of their bottom line. Again, Walter Brueggemann says, it's impossible. And this is like, when I've talked about the stinging, this is gonna be part of that, okay? So just stick with me. It's impossible to overstate the cruciality of this vision of justice for the coming ideal king, the importance of which is evident in a society like ours, wherein governmental power is largely in the hands of the wealthy and powerful and is operated almost exclusively to their own advantage and benefit. Such an arrangement of public power is a complete contradiction of the biblical vision of government. And all of you say in unison, there's a biblical vision of government? I didn't know because the Bible is not political and neither are we and neither are you, Josh. Keep that stuff out of here. You can't preach that. Now, I'm not gonna show you which candidate's shirt I have underneath of this. I don't, that, that was a joke. But I am gonna tell you that the Bible is radically politically motivated and you can't pray for the king or the president or the leaders without being political to some degree and you can't think about the poor and the marginalized and oppressed without being political because it doesn't do a lot of good just to be the person who maybe gives a dollar to the homeless person on the street and doesn't think about systemic problems and legislative change. But the Bible's not political. 
then neither should we be. We're fine, as long as we just listen to that K-love, <laughs> and as long as we just pray our prayers, and as long as we just walk on by everybody who needs our help, unless you read the book of James that says when you do that, you're worth nothing. That's a very loose paraphrase, okay? So go, go back and, and read that bit in James, but it's like when somebody's crying out for a coat and you give them your warm wishes of well-being and don't do a darn thing for them, you're not really helping the cause. But the Bible isn't political, so we don't need to think about that. All we need to think about is our individual selves and how we can accrue enough money for ourselves so that our Christmas can be nice this year, okay? So, pressure's off. <laughs> he will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. This is so powerful. Because in order for the king to rule on behalf of the poor and the needy and the oppressed, he must have some sort of ability to punish, but check the punishment. It's spoken. It's the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. This is not a tyrant who comes to put a dagger in people's stomachs. This is one who is able, <clears throat> I don't wanna take our 21st century American context and put it back into to this, but I'm gonna use some words that might resonate. It's one that's able to legislate change in a nonviolent, peaceful sort of way. This seems to be the ideal for this ruler, he will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. And I, I, I just saw Evan's face, and I'm, I'm just gonna read into it for a second. I have no idea, Evan, what this looks like in the ancient Near East at, at this time. I have no idea what it would look like for this person to be the ideal ruler and to strike the violent with their mouth. I don't know what that would be because we really have no examples of this. This is why this is an imaginative intrusion in the text one that is showing hope for what could be, but it's so hyperbolic that it doesn't even make sense in our understanding of the world because as we sit here and think, how can you be in power without hurting people? How can you rule with a rod of your mouth? How can you strike the violent in that way? All we know are jails and the death penalty. How can this work? And I challenge you here for a second because even in the Old Testament, maybe specifically in the Old Testament, what this is evoking is what could be, not what is. And I don't know necessarily how to get us from what is to what could be. Again, Brueggemann says, it's clear that this spirit, remember the spirit that is upon this ruler, allowing them to have wisdom and understanding. It's clear that this spirit is in the business of making systemic reparations for the poor and the marginalized. Look out. Walter bringing some heat there with this one. And this evening, I'd like to throw this stuff out here for us to, to contemplate and to wrestle with. And this was one of these statements that when I read it, man, it just took me, took me back. Um, and not really knowing how to contextualize this, but in this passage, it's hard to argue against. But folks, before we get all excited about what this ideal ruler could do on behalf of these folks, 
let's get a check for a moment and think about the society in which we live where the top 10% of the United States owns roughly 70% of our country's wealth and the bottom 50% of all of the people have roughly 2% of our nation's wealth. There is inequity out the wazoo that's happening here. So when we think about this ideal ruler, it goes beyond the imagination as to what in the world it would look like to have a, I'm gonna say something, you can pick at this later if you want to, a level playing field amongst the image bearers of the people of God. Where when the bottom 50% represent only 2% of the nation's wealth. It's clear that the spirit is in the business of making systemic reparations for the poor and the marginalized, of which we probably are not. You follow? Our job would be to be part of this spirit leading, moving, to be in the business of making these systemic reparations for people that we are not in the same way that we look at the stump and we think, oh, that's really cool. When we're the ones that have laid waste to the tree, we in this image also need to pump the brakes for a moment and think that when we talk all this game about the poor and the marginalized, that that probably is not who we are, but it is our job as spirit-filled followers of Jesus to begin to figure out what it might look like to care for the oppressed as God cares for the oppressed. And again, I... I don't know, because for the most, most part of my life, I've operated sort of in this understanding of I'm the, I'm the recipient, I'm not the giver. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips, this ruler's hips, and faithfulness, the belt around his waist. Really, this is a cool play in Hebrew because what we have here is righteousness will be the belt around from his ribs uh, down to the top of his hips, and faithfulness will be the belt from his top of his hips to his, <laughs> Kate's in the back like, nope. So there's like this kind of a, a, a girdle here and a loincloth here, and one of them says righteousness, and one of them says faithfulness. Right? So we have Tyus here. This is Tyus. Uh, he's six foot two, 160 pounds, so says the Lululemon website where I got Tyus from. And he's wearing, <laughs> he's wearing a five year white tee that you can get for uh, you know, $60 or so, which speaks to this wealth uh, inequity, if you will, when you're spending $60 on a, on a white t shirt. And come on, if you, you show me a white t shirt like that that's going to last you five years, I might shell out 50 bucks or 60 bucks for that. But anyway, this is, this is Tyus here. And Tyus, in this image, I wasn't gonna give you like the midsection and the loins, even though maybe some ladies in the room might be thinking that's nice. Marnie, get out of here with that. So he's wearing Sedek on his shirt. He's wearing Emuna on his shirt. He's wearing righteousness and he's wearing faithfulness on his clothes so that when he shows up, you know who he is and what he's about. He's, it's emblazoned on who he is, thanks to my very beautiful computer skills. This is not a Lululemon shirt. If it was, 
I would probably save some of my money just because I like wearing Hebrew shirts. Okay, so this is, this is Tyus here with this sort of um, message emblazoned on him so that people know this is what the king is. He shows up and, and he is tattooed, as it were, with righteousness and faithfulness, and you can understand what this person is about and what is leading from this ideal uh, Davidic king is newness. It's, it's Yahweh making everything new, even to the point of us not being able to understand how it would work in real practice. Yahweh is making all things new through this idealized king, and he's doing that from a stump, something that has been sliced down and killed to the bottom, something that is dead, and God says, I will cause something good to come from you. I'm not done working yet. And this is where this poem, we've got these first five verses praising who this person might be and how difficult it would be for us to even understand who it is. And then it launches into stuff that is very difficult for us to understand. The wolf will live with the lamb. That doesn't make sense. We might not live in a context where we understand the characteristics of these animals, but still we should realize that this isn't Real life, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion will feed together. There's another way you could translate this too. It might be the calf and the young lion and the fatling, uh, but there's discussion as to whether or not this is, should be rendered as a verb or uh, a noun, depending on how you wanna treat this term. But either way, the calf and the young lion, they'll, they'll be together and no one will be harmed and a child will lead them. Robert Alter says the famous lines that begin with this phrase are a vivid reflection of the fondness for hyperbole manifested in prophetic poetry. It's unlikely that the prophet literally envisaged a radical transformation of the order of nature in which carnivores, wolves and lions and these sorts of things would become pacifist herbivores. They're not anticipating this to take place in reality. This is a poetic piece of hyperbole, but all this served as a striking image for an ideal state when all violence would come to an end. This is the part of the poem that we understand, but I don't think that we sense the gravity of it and how far out there it is for us. Can you imagine a peaceful society? Can you imagine people even in this county getting along and not uh, evoking violence upon one another? It boggles the mind, which is why when we see these sorts of images and we think uh, immediately, well, that's not practical. We can't beat our swords and our guns into plowshares because we need them to get people off of our property because people will certainly want to harm us at some point. And you might be right. <laughs> because in this world, we don't understand what the author is attempting to move us towards, namely a society of peace, a society where people coexist and not only coexist, like benefit each other. If we don't understand the, the animal images, then for the parents in the room, maybe you'll understand this because the hyperbole continues, a nursing child and I always got to tell you this. Yeah, we got time for this. In the Hebrew, uh, the, the verb here for to suck is yanak. 
And in the Hebrew, there, there aren't vowels. You can insert vowels. And Y and K, if you insert some vowels, maybe you could insert Y A N K E E to suck Yankees. <laughs> Hmm. I should have had a graphic for that one, but a nursing child will play over the snake's hole, their home, where they are. They will have no care or concern for their potential harm. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. These terms here... uh, I got interested about animal terms in Hebrew this past week and didn't do a whole lot of work on it, but there's a lot of variants here. But for the most part, um, cobras, uh, asp, I think, is that a snake word? An adder, maybe? All poisonous snakes. And people are just like hanging out and like not caring because in this imagined world, there's no problem with kids being here. I don't fancy myself a helicopter parent, but I'm on high alert as to the potential dangers around my children. And I would think that this sort of a scenario would be on my radar, right? Kate and I are very similar in this one way, really. (laughs) We, We have a deep fear and respect for creatures uh, snakes and mice and all things that, you know what? Leave us alone because you just imagine that mouse crawling all over your body. I try to do this every time. Kate's like, do we have, is there a mouse? Is there, is there a mouse somewhere? I'm like, it's, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then like, I'll, this happened like a couple weeks ago. I'm sorry. Now that you know, we have, we had one intruder and, uh, I was like trying to posture as this, like, whatever, like, this is not a big deal. I can't believe you're freaking out about this. And when I saw that little thing scurry, Whoa! Ah! Ah! We'll get some traps. That's what we'll do. You know? They do. Bubonic plague. I'm not trying to go there. I'm not trying to go there. It might as well be. Yes. So thank you, Laura. I appreciate this. It wasn't the mouse All right, doctor, veterinarian, whatever. Trying to stick up for the mice. Let them be gross. Let them. Okay. This, like, snakes, definitely on my radar. Mice, sure, you know, unless my kids want to be the ones that trap them. That would be a bonus for us because we don't want to do that. But either way, like, this doesn't, it doesn't compute in reality because we wouldn't allow our kids to be in this sort of scenario. These, these, these children, these small little humans will be in these positions of potential danger, but there won't be danger. There will only be peace. Because this idealized ruler has shown up and has, and has ruled with equity and justice and righteousness. It's emblazoned on his loins and his loins. Like th- these sorts of things, I thought that would be a, more of a response there, but it just made me look super weird. I apologize for that. <laughs> but this, this ruler would be an advocate for the right relationships amongst people and would not be using their position as an entryway into more power and more benefit and more money and more wealth 
and more self-interest, they would be ruling on behalf of the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. There will be peace. Or is that hyperbole too? Is there any way that we can bring these images from the, the book of Isaiah set within a context where destruction is looming, where hope is given this olive branch in, a, in almost a literal sort of way, growing up out of this stump is, is given to them like one day, Israel, one day, Jerusalem, one day, this ruler will show up and will transform everything. One day, if you just wait and experience what they can bring to bear, it will all change. And 2,000 years later, we're at vigils for lynching of unknown victims in our town. And as we're thinking about 90 years ago, we can think about present day and the inequity that takes place amongst people and the violence that is still perpetrated amongst one another for whatever reason and the relationships that are still broken and the fear that many of us might have just walking down the street. There will be peace, it says. The last verse in our passage for this evening, it says, they will do no evil nor act ruinously in all of my holy mountain for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. It might not be our reality, but I believe it's our job to be the agents who spread the knowledge of the Lord to all of these people and become part of the institution leading to the knowledge of God covering the earth as waters cover the seas. I also think that it might be worth us thinking how we can be agents of change here and now who see what is, but also hear what could be and maybe even what should be in light of what Jesus has done and move into that and live into that and lean into that and whatever sort of phrases you want to say about that. This is not a, a sort of message where you can hear and you can view and you can see what you've seen now and then go home and not do anything in response. I believe that this is one of these passages that is calling amongst the people of God, calling to the people of God to do something in response. I can't tell you what it looks like for Jesse and what it looks like for Kelly and what it looks like for Gianna, but I do hope that as we trust the Spirit to, to move and guide, that the Spirit can tell Jesse what it looks like for her and Kelly and Gianna, and that we can all begin to move and paint an image of what could be and what should be and what Jesus offers so that the knowledge of the Lord will fill this earth as water fills the seas. In week two of Advent, some people... Uh, topically or thematically categorize these weeks. And this is the week of peace. Don't allow yourself to think that it's impossible because that's all that we've seen. Instead, create scenarios in which the impossible becomes attainable. And that will only happen through the miraculous and supernatural work of Jesus 
living in us and motivating us and encouraging us in what might feel like a completely fruitless task. As I look around the room and I see the different people who are involved in different sorts of, uh, sorts of work, I can't even begin to fathom what this sort of a talk sounds like to the people on the streets that have to deal with this. I can't imagine what this sort of an idealistic conception of the world from a guy who sits in a chic coffee shop for about 30 hours a week reading books, what that sounds like to people that see what I don't see in the back of my housing development on the cul-de-sac. But I'm hopeful that people like us and others can begin to lock arms and move towards creating an image of peace that seems to be something that God is moving his idealized ruler into. And all throughout the Bible, we also see we are called to do those sorts of things as well. When we strip off this and we're wearing that $60 Lululemon, <laughs> man, I hope it says righteousness and justice and faithfulness. And I will take this Lululemon off of my back and give it to my neighbor if need be, because Jesus compels me to do so. May that be our image of peace this evening.